Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightning, and uh, I'm here with uh, Pastor Zabumafu. <laughs> my daughter loves Zabumafu. We saw Zabumafu at the Louisville Zoo back with the Krat brothers. Well, there you go. You don't even know who Zabumafu is, do you? I, I just was grabbing a Z word out of the blue. That wasn't even on my list. I forgot my list. Uh-huh. I left it at home, so I grabbed the first Z sound that came to my head. But uh, this is the Thirsty Podcast, and uh, today we're going to be covering Matthew chapter 16 through 20, and uh, we're starting right off with Jesus talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they wanted to test him, so they asked for a sign from heaven. They asked Jesus to do something supernatural, some kind of miracle, just to prove that he really was who he claimed to be, the Messiah. And uh, I talked last time about how that would be a lot like saying uh, to somebody who has poured out, they've they've bought you all kinds of gifts, some uh, person that you're in a relationship with or you're dating, they buy you all kinds of gifts, uh, they write you all kinds of love poems and and constantly want to spend time with you and uh, hold hands and everything else. And uh, And then you say, could you give me some more proof that you love me? Uh, that's why Jesus here calls them evil and adulterous. Yeah, and he says in verse 3, uh, In the morning you say, It will be stormy weather today because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to inter- interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And there's still a saying in English, uh, Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors warning. So it's about weather. And, and I like to say that, you know, the Weather Channel is like Snapchat for old people. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about the, the yeast of the Pharisees. And the yeast is a symbol of false teaching. It seems small and insignificant, yet it spreads and has great influence. Uh, it spreads out throughout that whole loaf. Uh, so I read an article this week that... Uh, it had really been prophesied several months ago by the Babylon Bee, uh, which does Christian satire. And Babylon Bee had said months ago that Lego unveils genderless bricks with no male or female connectors. All right. Well, that was supposed to be in fun. And yet last week it was reported uh, from Lego, the, lo- the world's largest toy maker, has already stopped labeling its products as for girls and for boys, and its website does not allow searches by gender. And the reason I bring that up is a little yeast about gender inclusiveness doesn't uh, stay little. It infects and affects everything, even Lego. And I have bins and bins of Legos. I figure that I'm going to fund my retirement with my Lego. We could... uh... Melt them down and uh, make yourself uh, parts for fixing your bike. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, uh, the thing I always think of with yeast is because uh, I have a hobby of home brewing, uh, and and I I know this about bread too. Actually, it's more so from the bread than the brewing. Um, what does it do to bread? It puffs it up, and that's kind of what uh, any fa- that really is what any false teaching does to anybody. Uh, the reason it's so dangerous is because it puffs you up. It takes your uh, ego or your your view of yourself and uh, inflates it. It makes it bigger than it actually is. And and that's true even if you might be kind of down on yourself or or um, uh, obsessing over over your 
flaws and shortcomings, uh, you're still getting puffed up. It's just that you're having an inflated view of how important your mistakes are. Um, Yeah. And then they go up north. They're in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus gives Peter and the apostles the ministry of the keys. So that's kind of the, the section, the keys and confession, the ministry of the keys that Unfortunately, your pastor probably did not spend a lot of time on in catechism class because it's usually the last thing and they run out of time. Uh, But it's so important. Uh, The binding and loosing keys that Jesus refers to here and then also uh, in the upper room after his resurrection declares that heaven is locked or unlocked. Luther writes in his small catechism, the use of the keys is that special power and right which Christ gave to his church on earth to forgive the sins of penitent sinners, but to refuse forgiveness to the impenitent as long as they do not repent. And this is a gift, a key that God gives to us as Christians. Uh, I just preached a sermon on this not long ago from Mark's gospel. uh, And here we have Matthew's rendition of it. But uh, one of the things, the points that I tried to make was that um, it, it has to do with speaking out loud. That's how the keys do the locking and unlocking. Uh, Yes, you can get the Holy Spirit just from silently reading your Bible. Um, uh, You can can look at a passage printed on the wall in an artistic way or or anything like that. The Holy Spirit can come to you. But the rubber really hits the road with speaking out loud. That's why Jesus makes such a big deal about Peter's confession. Peter spoke out loud and said that uh, we believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, that good news is what unlocks heaven for sinners or uh, for those who reject that good news, it it locks heaven shut for them. Uh, And so uh, this is why it is so important to enunciate forgiveness. Say say that somebody is forgiven or uh, even in the classroom when, uh, you know, let's say I've got a a student or somebody who um, accidentally drops a, a huge water bottle and it clangs on the floor and makes a sound and disrupts the class and and they say oh sorry uh, and it's it's kind of more like uh well please pardon me it's more like a courtesy thing but i always try to tell them um it, right away you're forgiven and they they usually kind of look at me funny like why are you saying forgiven and i was like oh i'm sorry it's a uh, then I said, I'm what, sorry. What, yeah, did they say, I'm for, I forgive you, Pastor? They, they, I, I say, oh, it's just my uh, knee-jerk habit. Whenever I hear sorry, I want to tell people you're forgiven. And then Jesus talks about his suffering and death and resurrection. And Peter says, never, Lord. And Jesus has some very strong words for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Well, why would Peter say, never, Lord, this should never happen to you? Well, Peter was bold to confess Christ, but when Jesus said he had to suffer, then Peter became afraid because if Jesus suffered, then Peter knew he would have to suffer. So Peter sounds like he is concerned about Jesus when he's really concerned about himself. And that's why Jesus rebukes him sharply. Uh, And I think the impact of... uh, This impacts us as 21st century American Christians because we're soft. We don't like being threatened, booed, canceled, and so on. We enjoy our quietism of staying by ourselves, keeping our heads down, not stirring up trouble. 
But Jesus says trouble is coming simply because of our connection to him. Really, if we don't want persecution, then we should just go over and join the other side. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus and be on his side, then we'd better strap on our gospel armor and get ready for battle. It's time to go on the offensive using the sword of the Spirit. Uh, It kind of reminds me of a a cartoon or a a meme that I saw once of... um, it had to do with heterosexual men who are in favor of homosexuality. And the point of the meme was basically saying uh, that it's not so much that they care really about gay rights or, or the plight of the homosexual. It's more so that uh, they don't want anyone bothering them about uh, the sinful things they might be doing with their girlfriends. Uh, they would rather be uh, saying, well, anybody that wants to do whatever in uh, behind closed doors with anybody is okay. Uh, so uh, if you can't judge them, then you can't judge me either. It's kind of, I thought of that as you were talking about Peter really just being self-interested. Sure. Anything else you want to bring up on this chapter? Uh, just the nice transition that it makes from uh, verse 28 into chapter 17. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, Amen, I tell you, some who are standing here will certainly not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that might lead you to think that uh, Jesus is saying some of his apostles are going to be around until judgment day. Uh, But that's not what he's saying. He's actually saying you're going to be eyewitnesses of me having my full authority and power manifested and then what happened six days later, he, uh, tra- he was transfigured, and uh, three of them who had heard that promise from chapter 16, verse 28, were eyewitnesses of uh, him coming with all this power and glory in his transfiguration. And then looking at the transfiguration, I just wanted to read a few paragraphs from the last sermon I preached on this text from Matthew. Uh, sometimes all we can see is what we don't want to see. Before our eyes is a collage of sadness. We see a riddled, a past riddled with stupid, unfixable mistakes. We see a present full of people we've let down. We see a future bankrupt of hope. We see a million sights and none of them are pleasing to the eye. Sometimes we see too much. When our lives are going well, we see so many good things that we become blind to the giver of those good things. When our lives are falling apart, We see so many bad things that we're blind to the sustainer of all things. Whether we are overcome by happiness on the mountaintop or overwhelmed by sorrow in the valley, our vision can be our greatest handicap. We need to learn to see Jesus alone, to see him in his deep humiliation in the cross and in the grave, to see him in his divine glory on the mountain and out of the grave. To see Jesus alone is not to be blind to everything else, but to see everything in him and through him. So we see that Jesus is the forgiver of our past. He not only erases our long list of sin, but writes in their place his lifetime of good deeds. His love transfigures our past by making his past our own. Jesus is the companion of our present. He wakes us up every morning with the words, Good morning, Saint. I'll be with you all day. For I am with you to the end of the age. You are my baptized child. The devil can't touch you today. And Jesus is the hope of our tomorrow. The oncoming thunderstorm of teenage angst or family issues or overwhelming addictions 
or debilitating diseases will be quieted with Christ's grace. Whatever will happen cannot change what has happened. Whatever will happen to you in life cannot change what Christ allowed to happen to him on the cross. Well, I, if that's from a sermon, then I think that's uh, got to be the comprehensive word on it. I, I don't know if I have much more to add. Uh, other than, uh, I, I always like telling the story because uh, I don't know if Mark or Luke uh, include this in their accounts of the transfiguration, but uh, Matthew does include the line where Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And uh, I suppose this, I always tell this story, but uh, it's especially fitting now that uh, we're living back in the Kenosha Racine area. My wife taught uh, at a Lutheran grade school in Kenosha. And one time she, when she was teaching the students about the transfiguration, um, she asked them to make a drawing of it. And one of the little girls, actually one of the pastor's daughters, uh, made a drawing of uh, Peter saying this. And then the next frame was like a cartoon uh, where everybody was responding to Peter. No, Peter, we are not spending the night. <laughs> there you go. All right. And then uh, when they come down the mountain, uh, Jesus says uh, that, Amen. I tell you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And they asked, uh, Jesus responded with that because they were, the disciples were wondering why they couldn't drive the demon out of the boy. And uh, Jesus had given them power to drive out demons, but uh, all of a sudden that wasn't working for them. Um, and so they wondered, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said, you, you didn't have faith, or you didn't trust that it would happen. Yeah, and so the power to move mountains doesn't come from the quality of faith, but the promise to which the faith clings. And the reason we don't order mountains to move into the sea is not so much that we don't have the faith, is that uh, we, we don't have a need to move well, and, mountains. And we don't have faith, like you said, it has to have an object to grab hold of. And uh, in this, in, for Christians, your faith grabs hold of God's word. And the fact is that we don't have a specific word from God telling us, uh, in this case, in 2021, uh, I want you to throw a mountain into the sea. If we did, if we had a word from God telling us that specific thing in that specific case, then it would definitely happen. Uh, but since God hasn't given that word or command, uh, we have no reason, or, we, or like you said, no practical use for it either. And so God has promised us many things that are greater than throwing mountains into the sea. And those greater things are word and sacraments. So I was thinking this week of how difficult ministry can be, and yet how, also how enjoyable it is. It's a serious business, but I also try not to take myself too seriously. So I was texting another pastor, and I was asking him uh, if he was on Zalesorger. So Zalesorger is a, a Facebook closed group for us Wells pastors. And uh, I asked him because I knew he had been kicked off of Zalesorger a few years ago. And he told me that, and uh, then he texted back saying that he's been blessed over the years of his ministry to confirm hundreds of people and baptized dozens more and been on the bedside of others, uh, saints going to heaven. 
but some of the best fun he's had during his years in the ministry is trolling on Zale Zorger. And, and I love that because I think that's someone that takes ministry seriously, but not too seriously. Hmm. Uh- there's a little transition, a couple of verses with 22 and 23, um, that Jesus, again, just like he did in the last chapter, said that uh, he's going to be betrayed and that he's going to be killed and, and then he'll be raised. Uh, and there's just this little note that Matthew adds, the disciples were greatly distressed. Uh, so you can see they're talking about the woes of ministry even back then. Uh, the disciples didn't quite understand what was going on. Um, but then we get this, uh, this occurrence that uh, I like to set up by asking, um, do, do we as Christians have to pay taxes? All right. Well, I figure you've got a good answer for it, so I'll let you go ahead and with your answer. Jesus actually gives it, uh, or actually Simon does. Um, he asks, do, do, uh, do kings collect taxes from their own kids or from other people's kids? And uh, Simon said, from other people's kids. And Jesus says, so the sons are exempt. Uh, in other words, and, and if you caught this, even the wording I used, do we have to pay taxes? That, that's a compulsory word. And as uh, children of, of uh, God through Christ, we're set free. There's nothing that we have to or don't have to do. Uh, but Jesus says, um, so that, uh, so that, uh, oh, oh, so that we do not offend them. That's where it is. Verse 27, so that we do not offend them. We're, we're going to pay taxes anyway, but so that we do not offend them, uh, cast your hook and take the first fish that you pull up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a silver coin and you can use that to pay, pay the tax. And if, uh, the president and Congress passed their $3 trillion bill. Uh, we may have to go fishing, and hopefully there's coins inside the fish to pay all the taxes we're going to need to be able to pay for all that. Hey, doesn't that sound like fun? Yeah. And then you go into chapter 18, and Jesus, uh, and he says this so often, and, and when you start reading through the Gospels, you pick up how often Jesus uses little children as an example of humility. He does it again in verse six. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So this millstone is what a donkey would use uh, with its owners to grind the wheat. Uh, and, and I apply that in, in this way in that I think parents, they are all mixed up, that they are overprotective of their children's physical health but they are woefully deficient in their protection of their children's mental and spiritual health. Uh, Parents today won't allow their kids on teeter-totters of bruised tushies, uh, merry-go-rounds of death, monkey bars of broken arms. Uh, They won't let their kids play in the park by themselves for fear of stranger danger. Yet, those same parents hand their young children a phone connected to the internet where there are uh, dangerous strangers all over the place. Uh, Facebook had recently admitted that Snapchat, which they own, is dangerous to kids' psyche. And even even worse, parents keep their kids away from church, from hearing about repentance and forgiveness, exposing Satan's lies and expounding upon God's truth of sin and grace. So Jesus' warning here is clear. And I'm wondering if parents today are 
fitting themselves for millstone necklaces. Uh, the, these verses are actually um, in the historic ancient pericope, the uh, reading the gospel for the festival of St. Michael and all angels um, in, uh, in, the, in the ancient church. Uh, and it, it sort of starts around the beginning of the chapter and then goes until uh, verse 10. See to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones, because I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father who is in heaven. And uh, I've heard many different interpretations of that verse. Uh, I'm wondering what you have, if you have anything in your notes on it. But uh, that's kind of the point is that angels protect all of us, but they especially are concerned with, just as Jesus is concerned with little children. Right. I think some people take this as saying, well, the, the little kids, well, all of us then have guardian angels, but that you know, a specific guardian angel, but that's not what this verse is talking about. It's actually saying there's more, there's more than one. There's lots of them. Yeah. Um, uh, looking at the father's face, um, I I think, you know, I've heard, uh, the interpretation that, uh, angels are holy. And so if they're always looking at something holy, uh, you don't want to teach little children to, uh, sin or to uh, be, be involved in bad behavior because um, that will lose them the protection of their holy angels because angels can't stand to see anything unholy. They're always looking at the Father's face. Um, another interpretation I heard was uh, going back to Isaiah 6, where the, there, there's a rank of angels, the seraphs, that actually want to cover their faces in front of God's presence. And, uh, and so that actually seems to make the, the higher ranking angels, the ones who actually get to look at God's face. And so the point is God is sending his most highest ranking, uh, powerful, uh, noble angels to guard little children. Hmm. And then right after that, verse 7, it says, Jesus says, Woe to the world because of temptations to sin. Temptations must come, but woe to that person through whom the temptation comes. So what he's saying there, it is inevitable in the sinful world that temptations will come. But there's an ancient saying that uh, was quoted by Martin Luther and it applies here. You cannot prevent the birds from flying over your head but you can certainly keep them from building a nest in your hair. So what he's saying there is temptations are going to come in your mind. That's just being a sinner, living in a sinful world. But you can keep yourself from acting on those sinful thoughts. And we've again got that saying from Jesus about cutting your hand off or your foot off if it causes you to sin. And uh, again, I think I made this point in Mark's gospel, but it's worth repeating Jesus is speaking literally. He doesn't want you to mutilate yourself, but he's trying to make the point that if you think it's just your body parts that you can't control, it's more important for you then to lose the body part than to uh, let it lead you into sin. Um, and, And his point is, of course, hopefully you're going to realize it's not really the body part that leads me into sin. It's the sinful heart inside of me that that causes me to sin. Then we get to Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. Very familiar verses. We use these all the time. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So, Jeremy, how have you applied those verses in your home, in your ministry, and Uh, so forth? 
this whole chapter, I mean, I'm trying to rein it in on all the things I could be saying about the little children and the angels and the cutting off body parts and all that kind of stuff. And this one here, yeah, I, I have had a lot of experience using this. Um, maybe the one that pops into my head first is uh, at my first congregation. Um, well, maybe the best way to illustrate it would be one of the most uh, long-standing, uh, well-tenured elders on the board of elders made the comment uh, that in uh, his you know seventy-plus years of uh, being a member and serving that congregation, uh, he could only think of one time when there was an actual case of church discipline where somebody was excommunicated. And I don't even think they used the word excommunicated, uh, but uh, somebody was disciplined and, and removed from membership in the church. Uh, and everything else would have been, you know, some kind of uh, a flowery way of covering it up, uh, the, the removals of membership. Um, and so we, we started with that passage to say, this is the process Jesus wants us to use. And uh, we are going to excommunicate people. And then we are going to announce it Publicly, it's the it's the voters, it's the uh, voting body of the church that does the excommunicating. It's not a pastor, it's not an individual. Uh, it has to be by a vote of the uh, voting assembly. But uh, when it does get to that point, um, uh, Jesus says that uh, you do need to treat them like uh, you treat an unbeliever, a tax collector. Um, and and the point is th the way that. The Pharisees and Sadducees, or the Jewish people, treat the, the the tax collectors not the way that Jesus was accustomed to treating the the tax collectors and sinners. Uh, at some point, you do need to say, "The most loving thing for me to tell you right now is that you are going to hell." So, refresh my memory. Did I tell you the story? What, I don't know if it was last Probably. time about uh, about one of the older ladies complaining about my biking. Did no, I that no, I, right. as this might be a new one. So. Because I only have so many stories, so I want to make sure I use them all. Is uh, several years ago, I went to visit my shut-ins, and you well, know, I do a lot of biking, and I biked to go visit them, and so I biked to go visit Eleanor, who didn't live very far from the church. And I, as I was pulling my bike into her house, she said, "Oh, Pastor, I had to defend you again." I said, oh, "Now what?" Because it was always defending me against the other older ladies at church. She was in her nineties. And she said, oh, someone called me up and said, do you think Pastor Zarling bikes so much because he's trying to tell us that we don't pay him enough? <laughs> and, and I said, well, Eleanor, uh, the last time I had knee surgery on my knee, I had two knee surgeries on it. The doctor said I don't have any cartilage left, so I can't do a lot of running. Hmm. And I don't want to be the fat pastor. And so that's why I bike. And she said, oh, no, I just told her, don't you have anything better to do than to bother my pastor? Uh. <laughs> but she could very well have just said Matthew 18, right? Uh. Matthew, you know, she was confronting the, the sinner on one-on-one. Uh, on one. Right. And, and saying, hey, uh, if, if you don't, if you think this bothers you, then you need to go and talk to pastor, not talk about the mm. pastor. Mm -hmm. And that's really what Jesus is saying here. Uh, I think you can also apply... Uh, Martin Luther's explanation to the Eighth Commandment here, yeah. taking words and actions in the kindest possible way. I was coming at this more from the angle of the use of the keys, mm -hmm. 
which is an important part of the small catechism, and this does apply there. Uh, but yeah, this is also a matter of people's reputations and, and the Eighth Commandment. Yeah, and so the goal here, as also with the keys, is to restore. That restoration is the ultimate goal of Christ's admonition. Uh, that too often, and this has always been the case, but I think you really have seen it show itself these last few years. It's about winning an argument, being right. Uh, it's not about sharing Christ's righteousness. Uh, and if that is not our goal, then I think it's like a big game of Monopoly, and we all hate Monopoly. Because Monopoly, it's all about driving the other person into bank- bankruptcy. That's how you win. Uh, but our goal should be to be able to have everyone get a j- get out of jail free card, hmm. meaning give them that free forgiveness. That's our goal of restoring them, not driving them to their knees so that they are not just repentant, but so that we win. Yeah. There's a difference between winning and winning over. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's the wording Jesus uses is not that you end up being right or looking good at the end of the day, but that you win somebody over. Um, and, and then that leads very nicely into what Peter was then wondering. Uh, Peter's kind of thinking to himself, okay, I guess uh, a, a big deal in Jesus' mind is that we forgive people. Uh, if they repent, we forgive them. Uh, if oh, we could talk all day long about where two or three have gathered in my name, um, there's a whole podcast devoted to that title. Uh, but uh, there's there's a lot of things that Peter then has on his mind, and and he's thinking about forgiveness, and and he thinks, okay, uh, exactly how long should we go back and keep on trying to forgive people uh, when they sin against us, and uh, and he thought he was being pretty generous by saying about seven times, and uh, Jesus says, in in essence, he says, don't keep track, uh, seven seven times seventy or seventy seven times, however you want to translate it. And then uh, Jesus tells them the parable of the unmerciful servant to uh, make that point. And basically, uh, why will the Lord not forgive us if we don't forgive those who sin against us? I thought the Lord forgave every sin. Well, what he is saying here is if we do not forgive others, then we betray a lack of repentance and faith. And if that's our attitude, then we shut ourselves out from receiving God's forgiveness. So Jesus is saying, if you're not willing to forgive someone, then you you can't receive forgiveness. And we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. If Really what happened was, uh, but when the servant went out and started choking, uh, the servant was forgiven uh, a huge, enormous debt that he could have never paid. And when he went out and started choking somebody who uh, wouldn't pay him back, uh, he was proving that he did not actually understand forgiveness. And if you don't understand forgiveness, then uh, you, you don't have it. That's the nature of forgiveness. Uh, you don't have it if you don't understand it. And uh, he proved that he didn't understand it. So uh, that also was the same thing as losing his forgiveness. And then we get into chapter 19. As some large crowds came up, to Jesus, he healed them, and some Pharisees come. They're testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? So I'll let you go first on that one, Jeremy. What do you have on that test? Well, uh, first of all, I, I like that the way that Jesus handles it. Uh, instead of taking the issue 
directly in front of him, um, he, he did take the issue directly in front of him. The issue was divorce and marriage. And he said, um, let's not get caught up in uh, splitting hairs or, or, fine, or fine print on the, on the contract. Let's go back to the original intent that God had when he set up this institution called marriage. Uh, and so that, that's what Jesus then does. He goes back to the beginning when God created them male and female. And so this is from last week's sermon where I preached on these words, but from Mark's gospel. And I took it not so much to talk about um, divorce as I did to talk about the blessing of marriage and the blessing of the home, the blessing of family. Uh, If your family has felt more like a curse than a blessing, then bring your brokenness, your sin, and your heartache to Jesus. Don't look for loopholes in Jesus' words like the Pharisees were doing with Moses. Don't seek justification for your actions. Don't point an accusing finger at your offending partner. Gather up the broken pieces of your marriage and set them at the foot of your Heavenly Father and say, I'm sorry, I broke it. Nail your brokenness to the cross. Bury your brokenness in Christ's open tomb. Wash that brokenness away in baptismal waters. And then receive the power to live a new life in the sacrament. Uh, Have the triune God place his hand on you and give you a blessing as Jesus gave a blessing to to the children. And then I also said that Jesus gave his life for all. The married, the single, the divorced, the widows and widowers, the children. He reached out in mercy to a Samaritan woman who had been married to five men and now was living with a sixth guy. That he defended a woman who was caught in adultery. He absolved her and then sent her away and saying, uh, go and sin no more. That Jesus body was broken and bleeding on the cross because of our broken homes. He was abandoned. He was forsaken. He was divorced from his heavenly father for our divorces. And he became an adulterer in our place so that we might receive his righteousness. I I was thinking a lot about the single people when you were preaching on Sunday. And uh, the the fact is that we have far too much cheapening of marriage. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. and uh, th- that's really the best way to understand this section is anything that cheapens marriage, which obviously adultery and, and having an affair or, you know, looking at pornography or whatever or, or anything like that, uh, that does cheapen marriage. Uh, but uh, you could also cheapen marriage uh, simply by um, uh, picking fights with each other. Um, simply by being being nasty or impolite. I remember my grandparents talking about uh, my grandma in particular, my mom's mom, saying that uh, it it takes a lot of work in in your older years just to show each other common courtesy. Uh, but that's another way you can enrich marriage as opposed to cheapening it. Um, and uh, yeah, and with that, I had uh, picked up my oldest daughter today. We we refed five soccer games and. Uh, when I went to pick her up, her neighbor lady was out cutting grass, and Abby mentioned that the lady was cutting grass because her hus- she kicked her husband out of her home. That's the way Abby said it. And then Abby explained how they've got four kids together in this marriage, and that dad's living elsewhere, and he's got to pick up uh, the kids from one school and then the older kids from another school, and it's a big hassle. And I said, 
well, you should really tell the two of them, you know, this is a lot, sounds like an awful lot of work, this whole two separate homes, <laughs> and then the busing company won't, will only drop the kids off at one place, so dad has to pick them up at another. I, that sounds like more work than actually working on the marriage. Mm-hmm. And I, the same person who taught me that uh, anything that cheapens marriage is adultery, uh, he also taught me, especially when there are kids involved, you can never really get divorced. Mm-hmm. You still will end up having to be in each other's lives and uh, crossing paths and, and, like you said, working things out. But I... I sort of got sidetracked and even in you didn't sidetrack me. I sidetracked myself. Uh, I wanted to make a point about uh, the single people um, after I was thinking about that on Sunday. And these verses really offer a good uh, example of that. Uh, it, encouragement to single people uh, in verses 11 and, and 12, uh, because basically what Jesus is saying is that um, if you remain unmarried, if you are able to remain unmarried, in other words, you don't face any kind of uh, overwhelming temptation to sexual activity outside of marriage. Um, if you're able to do that, then accept it. Uh, because it is a, it, the disciples themselves said, uh, it is better not to be married. And, and Paul says that in First Corinthians too. That's a good thing. That is even, uh, you might say a better thing because you can get more done for God in his kingdom uh, without having the worries of uh, a household and family. Uh, but the key is the last thing Jesus said at the end of verse 12, the one who is able to accept this should accept it. Uh, if if you're not able to live that kind of a lifestyle, the single lifestyle without falling into sin, then he, Jesus isn't talking about you. Uh, but but if you if you can get by without that, then go for it. And you you reference what Paul said in First Corinthians. So I just wanted to read that verse. Paul says, "For I wish all people were like me, but each person has his own gift from God. One person is blessed in this way, another in a different way." I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, because it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Okay. Uh, we've got, again, a lot of overlap with Mark's gospel and the rest of this chapter, so uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but we have uh, Jesus talking about one of the main purposes for marriage, children, uh, and uh, they're not just a, a sideshow or an add-on. They, they are a major part of, be, of married life. Um, and uh, he says, don't, don't disdain them. Let, them come to, let little children come to me. Uh, and then we've got uh, the, the section on the rich young ruler. So I don't know if any of those you wanted to talk about in greater detail. Yeah, in verse 23, Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So a poor man may have just as great of a craving for wealth as a person who has attained that wealth. So the rich man may be protective and possessive of his mansion and Tesla. But the poor man may be protective and possessive of his tent and shopping cart. So the the hardness or difficulty lies in the area of renouncing all trust and material possessions to give security, status, and fulfillment. When you said Tesla, you meant the car. Yes. Yeah, I thought maybe you were zeroing in on one specific rich man. No, no. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, and, and what I wanted to focus on there, too, is how, how do you use your wealth? Because God does bless us with wealth. Uh, and that 
we can use that wealth. And uh, we use our wealth to provide for ourselves. That's the seventh commandment. We use our wealth to protect the wealth of others. Also the seventh commandment. We can also use our wealth for others and for those within the Christian church and support the ministry of the Christian church. And there, uh, we in our congregation, and Jeremy's part of the congregation, that we're, uh, we just started pushing and encouraging our members to purchase a new Christian worship hymnal that the Wisconsin Synod just came out with. And it would cost our congregation about $8,500 for the hymnals and the whole hymnal suite for the musicians and everything. And it's just really neat. And I wanted to bring this up, how encouraged I am by our members that at $8,500, we received a $5,000 memorial, another $1,000 anonymous gift. And then we encouraged our members to buy a hymnal for the congregation as a gift. And then also think of purchasing a hymnal for their home that, uh, I'm going to be doing uh, video and written devotions. I'll ask Jeremy if he'll do some now uh, as well. But the last time I looked, uh, our congregation had uh, offered to buy 57 hymnals for the church. So that's several hundred dollars. And then almost that many for home as well. So because we want them to use the, the hymnals as, as a devotional tool. But I'm just really encouraged by our congregation that it's really not going to end up costing our congregation very much out of our budget to purchase an $8,500 or $8,500 set of hymnals. Maybe a good way to tie that into this chapter would be then um, the Jesus asked the rich man to give up everything, um, and that's not something that he asks all of us to do. Uh, we shouldn't think that that's actually something that Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages uh, often would point to. They said, look, look, Jesus said, give up everything. Uh, so that's what the monks and the nuns and, and the ascetic lives uh, of people should do. Um, but uh, the point was he asked the rich young man in this one case to do it. He doesn't ask all believers everywhere. He says, what is it that's your idol and and give it up? So, uh Maybe if, if it sounds like uh, a hymnal purchase is a really uh, daunting thing for you, that that might be a, a moment for some self-examination. Then we get into chapter 20, and Jesus again gives us a parable about the kingdom of heaven. It is like a landowner that goes out and is hiring people at different times during the workday to come and work, and at the end, he pays them all the exact same amount, whether they worked an hour or worked twelve hours. So, Jeremy, what do you want to say on that on that parable? Uh, it was one that I remember preaching on as one of my early sermons while I was still in the seminary. Uh, but there's something that has, in more recent years, struck me about this. Uh, you, you've got the whole progression of different men being hired at different times and getting paid different amounts, or all being paid the same amount, rather, and, uh, and then grumbling about it. Uh, but uh, I think the one thing that has stuck with me in more recent years is verse 13. Jesus does not, or, I'm sorry, not Jesus, but the landowner in the parable does not take on the whole group and try to satisfy everybody all at once. He, it says, but he answered one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not make an agreement with me for a denarius? 
uh, take what is yours and go. I want to give the last one I hired the same as I gave you. And what strikes me about that is this is how Jesus likes to work with all of us. Uh, He works one-on-one. He doesn't work in big, uh, massive group type of of ways. Um, Yeah, well, the church is a massive group, but uh, we are also individuals. And he is here saying, I'm not going to try to convert people as a group. I want to convert just this one person who, uh, who I'm talking to right now. And the point of this parable is that whether people have been believers from their baptism or on their deathbed, the landowner, Jesus, is generous with what he gives them. So here I told this story the other day in my catechism class. Uh, A number of years ago, one of our members asked me to go visit her dad. Uh, He was in the hospital with some heart problems. And I was really nervous to go to the hospital to see this guy uh, because I knew he was a hard man. I've seen, I had seen him years ago at the gym for his grandchildren's basketball games, and he was not a nice guy. And then when I went up to the hospital, and I'm walking down the hallway, his door is open, he's at the end of the hallway, his other daughter, who's not a member, says to him, hey, Dad, Pastor Zarling from church is here. And he, I could hear him down the hallway say, why is he here? I'm going to hell anyhow. I thought, wow, this is going to be a good visit. But he listened. He listened as I shared sin and grace. He listened and even prayed along with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I was not able to get to see him again. I was scheduled to go see him uh, one day, and then uh, he went into a coma the night before. But I tell that story because if God had softened his heart, I don't think he did, but if he did, that gentleman on his deathbed, if he had made a confession of faith there at the last moment, he would have enjoyed the same, uh, the same gift of heaven of the, the 203-year-old ladies' funerals that I did who were blessed to be believers from their baptism, like a month old, to 103 years, or this guy for a day. It's the same, same gift. The same denarius. Same denarius, yep. Uh, and then we come to uh, a part where there's a very distinct transition uh, Jesus, le- he's been warning his disciples all along that he's going to suffer and die. Uh, but he sort of tells them in, in verses 17 and 18 that now the journey is beginning. This is, this is the final trip that, that we're going to make. We're going to go up to Jerusalem and uh, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and uh, condemned to die. And uh, th- that then, then it will happen and then he'll be raised from the dead. And... Um, I often think we're, you know, we're really hard on the apostles for all of their silliness. Peter asking to build the shelters and uh, uh, James and John wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans who wouldn't accept Christ. Um, And and here too, we have the apostles making some uh, very rash and ill-advised comments and and strategic moves. Uh, The sons of Zebedee, James and John, want to uh, have the chief positions in Jesus' kingship. Um, but uh, I, I often wonder, like, th- they weren't just, they didn't think of themselves as stupid, uh, and they weren't totally stupid, and uh, they certainly wouldn't have thought of themselves as malicious either. And, and I'm not excusing their behavior, but I am saying, 
what is it that might have driven them to think that this would be an okay thing to bring up right now in the context? And um, one of the thoughts that I've had over the years is, uh, if Jesus is talking so much about dying, then uh, maybe his disciples were thinking, well, we should really have someone set in place so that, you know, kind of like in a battle, if the commanding officer gets taken out, well, then the next ranking officer needs to step up and and take over the operation. And um, perhaps if they wanted to justify what they were doing, they would think to themselves, we need to stay organized. So if Jesus, you are going to die, then uh, we should have it very clearly defined who's in charge. I had never heard it put that way. And that doesn't make it right. It, it's the, what they did. I'm not trying to justify it, but I am trying to say, like, let's not just throw the disciples or, or even necessarily the Pharisees immediately into the category of the evil supervillain that just wants to, to terrorize and destroy. Maybe they thought they were doing something worthwhile. Well, since you just taught me something here, I'll see if... Uh, I can share something with you that you haven't heard, although you'll hear it tomorrow in my sermon. Ah. Uh, so I won't get too much into it. But uh, again, it's it's interesting how often I'm learning things as I'm going through this so much more in depth. And then, you know, as we hear it, it, the Gospels in small sections in church uh, and that Jeremy and I prepare for sermons, uh, it's a lot different when you read a whole chapter or the surrounding context. And Matthew in chapter 20 is very similar to what Mark says. And the way Mark has it is that the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, come and ask him for positions of power in his kingdom. And then right after that, blind Bartimaeus comes. And both of them, and I never picked up on this until I started writing the sermon this week, is Jesus answers uh, all three guys the same way. What do you want me to do for you? Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the sermon title. So if you listeners, if you want to learn more, you can listen to the podcast on, on that sermon. Of And I apply it to us as Christians. Jesus really says, even though we don't hear his voice every day, is he really says to us, what do you want me to do for you today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then so we need to be, you know, what is our answer? Is it... It forces you to think about your what what you want because uh, you might think you want something, but as soon as you say it out loud, uh, it may very quickly dawn on you that you don't want that at all. And you'd actually be in a bad place if Jesus did it or gave it to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and that, that is a great way to wrap up also the healing of the two blind men. Um, if you have another gospel, Mark or Luke, that talks about one blind man, it's maybe that Matthew here is... Uh, telling us about another one that was actually there, but just didn't get reported in another gospel. But uh, I'll just end by saying that uh, this is always a great uh, time to remember the beauty of the liturgy uh, that uh, we, we can, in our worship, we imitate this great prayer of have mercy on me or have mercy on us. Uh, that's what the Kyrie is. Yeah. So we're going to be staying in Matthew for two more weeks. And since Jesus began this section today, that we say talking about the weather. And since I've been talking about Flash, uh, heroes and villains for your names, so I'm going to pick a weather guy from Flash named Weather Wizard. So this is Pastor Zarling with the Weather Wizard. Uh, stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>